0: In the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022, the German government announced that it was finally getting serious about defense, that it would, for example, meet its NATO obligation to spend 2% of GDP on its military, among other measures. This announcement met with something like wide acclaim in the West, which in the long run of things is surprising given how, shall we say, mixed a united Germany's contribution to international security has been over the last few hundred years. After all, no less a figure than Margaret Thatcher once had concerns at the end of the Cold War about German reunification on similar grounds, those grounds being, in essence, that a united Germany was vulnerable to currents of aggressive militarism, probably Prussian in origin, that could resurge at any moment, as indeed they had in the past. Our guest today will help us understand those currents and what there is and is not to be said about concerns regarding... German militarism.
1: It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. The people who not down well, here are all of us sir. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields. And in the streets.
0: We shall never surrender. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. I'm delighted to be joined today by Peter Wilson. He is the Chichely Professor of the History of War at All Souls College, Oxford. He is the author of numerous intimidating scholarly tomes, of which the most recent is the extremely impressive Iron and Blood, a military history of the German-speaking peoples since 1500. Peter, thanks so much for joining the show.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. So I'm,
0: I've i been very much looking forward to our conversation today for a couple of reasons, one of which is that your book challenges a number of preconceptions that I have been carrying with me basically my whole life. They, they're sort of overdetermined. My father fought in the Second World War in Europe and very much had the impression that the Germans were, for cultural and historical reasons, basically folks you need to keep your eye on, that there was something naturally martial at work there. He also, This was commingled with the respect he had or their not a term he would have used necessarily, but we'll just say operational excellence, their their ability at war making and then I as a young officer was trained in a way of thinking about warfare that my instructors explicitly ascribed to to Prussia and to German to Blitzkrieg and German warfighting methods of, of previous centuries And I take that your book a, a, amongst its aims seeks to at the, at the very least propose that this notion of Prussian driven, militarism and uh, unique militarism and a kind of military excellence innate, to, innate to, to Germany is at the very least simplistic and maybe even misleading? I will, I will start by asking you to explain why I have, I've been wrong my whole
1: life. Well, I think I, I wouldn't say you've been wrong. And, that, and that's really part of the book. So yes, you know, militarism, the Prussian story, the idea of a you know, quick decisive victory, that's certainly part of the broader part of the German military history. But I think if we hone in on that and we try to read everything through that lens then we end up with a distortion and that ultimately is is confusing and misleading and gives us that that false impression so the key part of the book is to to explain that wider story that's lost but also to try to understand why it is that we've come to have the view that that you and 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 you know so many other people and, and indeed myself before i started on this i i also had that that sort of view and that I thought the story would be more conventional when I when I set out, but I, on closer inspection, I think it, it, we are confronted with a more complicated but also a more interesting picture. Did you? I, I want to go through. I mean, to the extent that one can
0: go through. I mean, it's really a, a, a magnificent and extensive history. So we'll we'll do our best here in forty five minutes or so. But before we we get into the the chronology a bit, why has this notion of sort of I'll, I'll defer to you to phrase it how you think best, but sort of you, you, unique and, and effective um, uh, military spirit and militarism, this, this general notion of, of Prussian dominance in Germany and German military dominance. Why is it so sticky? Why, why has it stuck?
1: Well, I think it dates from a time when professional history emerged. So if you think, you know, often presented as the father of modern historical writing, Leopold von Lanker. You know, these are people writing in the sort of middle of the, of the 19th century. And that is the period of the wars of unification, so called, and, and that's the, the period when Prussian military dominance really emerges. So in 1866, with the showdown with Austria, you know, all the bets are on an Austrian victory. So this is not a foregone conclusion. It's not necessarily what people expected. But after that victory, then on the one hand, the outsiders are, are, are thinking, you know, how does Prussia relatively you know, one of the seemingly one of the weaker of Europe's great powers, how does it successively defeat Austria and, and then France? You know, France seen as a, 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 at that point the best military power, the best army in Europe. And um, so there is that sense of astonishment and and and, and admiration, really, for a Prussian success. And so people are trying to think, well, how, how do they do it? And then, of course, the, the Prussian general staff that have think they've achieved this victory, and to some extent they have, some of it's chance and uh, good fortune they're also they're trying to defend their position within a, a political system where you know resources are always scarce so you're 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 telling the politician that, you know we know how we know how to fight we know how to win wars and you need to give us the resources and you also need to, to give us the political freedom to do so so they come to some extent some of them not all they come to believe that they, they do have the, the, the keys to a certain type of victory, which they also believe is, is necessary because they are aware that, they, that the country doesn't have the resources to fight a, a long and protracted war and then they will lose. So it, it, it's partly a, a story of their own success, but also a recognition of to some extent of their own limitations that that type of victory is really the one they have to go for. So your your book,
0: begins its account about 500 years ago. T- take us back to you know the beginning of of modernity in 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 Germany broadly speaking broadly understood and talk a bit about the Holy Roman Empire of, of which you are also a historian and its its military system. Where does the story begin?
1: The story begins really when the empire is achieving its sort of final and definitive form so the form that it's going to have for the last 300 years or so of its existence. Which is that of a, a, a collective. So, from a military perspective, this is a system of collective security, and internal peace and conflict resolution. So, it's 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 largely a sort of pacific structure. It's it's reactive, and it's orientated towards defending itself rather than fighting wars of aggression. So, this is one of the reasons why com- the, the conventional writing. In the, certainly, in the 19th century, when the empire, by the point once the empire did, had finished, but being replaced by the German Confederation, which is a kind of interior version of it, why those people who felt that leadership should pass to Prussia, why they were so hostile to the empire, because they felt that it was something that had kept Germany weak uh, and prevented it from becoming a, a, a great power. My argument really is: it's a different kind of great power, and it's it. it was relatively successful on its on its own term. So it has a system of collective security where different the different components provide military control for, for common defense.
0: I'd like to ask we were moving well beyond any any kind of field of expertise for me. So it was just a very basic historical question. Why is it that you see consolidation of state power, you know, in places like England and France and in the empire, you have this continuation of, of sort of disaggregation and collective security and 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 the phenomena that you were just describing. What is it about Germany that is? If we're talking about a different kind of German exceptionalism right. later, what okay. what is what is what is the source of the original other kind of exceptionalism?
1: Well, uh, first first of all, I I would say that we we shouldn't make those contrasts. So if you open a historical atlas and you look at a a map of of Europe before the 20th century and you look at the center, the center of the map looks very confusing. It's that colorful patchwork, Germany's divided into seemingly all these different states, you know, Italy the same. So the area then of the Holy Roman Empire, which, you know, was bigger than Germany, including Switzerland and, and, and much of Italy and stuff, it looks a mess. You know, France, Spain, solid colors. Well. You know, the the French had three different three hundred different kind of law codes before the era of Napoleon. You know, their country was not as uniformly organized and, and united, didn't they didn't they? In the nineteenth century, there were still many people, if you ask them in France, you know, which country were you living in? Oh, I live in the Auvergne. You know, they they wouldn't necessarily identify straight away as French. So, you know, that that kind of picture is is a historical construct from part of that nation-building process has constructed mm. that story, whereas the, the, the German identity has really always been multi, multi-layered. So you, you have a, a strong sense of your hometown or your locality, you have a sense of of the of a, of a region, so what would now be the federal states in Germany, and you have a broader sense of being German. And the political structure has usually yeah. been aligned to that, and the two things are mutually reinforcing. So the, this sort of decentralization is not so so surprising and it produced certain benefits. It comes with a cost, but it produced certain benefits.
0: Well, I guess another way of asking the same question is why, why does it last, you know, through to Napoleon?
1: Yeah, well, it it, it lasts really because it does have, it does have a, a measure of success. Yeah. It, it's undermined, in fact, as so the combination of the Internal balance is distorted. On the one hand, Austria, so the, the the power that holds the imperial title, has become a great power in its own right because it, by virtue of defeating the Turks and reconquering Hungary and acquiring other parts of Europe beyond the empire, and Prussia is, is the other the other one that does it. So, the actual Prussia was outside the empire, formerly part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It achieves its sovereign status in 1660, and that's unique. Other than the emperor, no one else is directly king of of anywhere else in Europe. And that royal status, which is so often denigrated in history, is actually important to to the other European powers, recognizing the Hohenzollern dynasty as something different. And they gradually sort of, they they become their kind of, no, I wouldn't say so much challenger because they're not actually seeking to leave the empire, but the, 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 growth of pressure disproportionate to, to any of the other principles in the empire unbalances the system at the point when revolution in France launches say, the, the, wars beginning in 1792, what we know is the revolution in the Paganate Wars. And that combination of external pressure and internal division is the thing that causes the empire to collapse.
0: Yeah. Um- Let's talk a bit about the, the 17th century in the in the Thirty Years' War. If this system had advantages, the Thirty Years' War must display some of the some of the disadvantages, just to, to put it mildly. Maybe actually, I you know, we've never talked about the Thirty Years' War on the show before. Tell us a little bit about what what it was, you know, just give us a bit of an overview. And then how does it transform the system that we are discussing
1: and military practice in the empire? it's it best to understand the war really as a, as a civil war, as an imperial civil war. It's a war about the religious and political order within the empire to which other powers intervene, either because they're supporting the Habsburgs, so like Spain, so they're supporting the, the, the Austrian Habsburgs, who they want to resolve this, so that they can then help them in other wars. So we need to think of, you know, sometimes the Years' War is seen as a general European conflict, and those that fought it, were very clear that, that, that there were multiple wars going on in Europe at the same time, and they're trying to keep these things separate. So there's external support for the Habsburgs to try to resolve the war. And likewise, those people who want to keep the Habsburgs busy and prevent them, say, from helping the Spanish, are intervening either indirectly with subsidies or directly with, with, with troops. So this is why the, there are these foreign interventions. And that's one of the things that makes the war so prolonged. I mean, the Habsburgs repeatedly win, you know. Bohemian revolts. well, the, the Bohemians have been smashed by November of 1620. The intervention prolongs the war. They're all defeated by 1624. The Danes intervene. They're defeated by 1629. There's a whole year almost of peace, relatively. And then the Swedes intervene, aided and abetted by the French. And and then then we really have a, a different character of the war that lasts another eighteen years or so. So it's a it, it's a, a conflict that could so so easily have ended earlier, but for for the, the, this combination of the internal and then the external factors, reignites the, the the conflict so that it drags on. Its
0: conclusion is spoken of. This is the, the 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 piece of Westphalia, right? Is 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 sort of enshrined. Certainly, in the American you know, political, diplomatic conversation as 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 a definitive moment that establishes certain concepts of sovereignty, sort of notions of of what war ought and ought not to be about, uh, that we might take certain religious questions off the table, right. it's It's sort of it's it's caught up in some ways with the, our the foundations of the way we think about government today in the ways w- in which we think about war today, right? in the in the modern strategic conversation, Here in the united states we we often it sort of starts with this this at at this place well we we westerners we we think in terms of peace being natural and then we go to war for certain objectives and then we negotiate peace and we have to be careful because when we talk about for example the chinese communist party they think in much more fluid terms and these are obviously very broad generalizations and the western conception the western generalization seems to be to go right back to to westphalia it's sort of the source of it you you um you suggest it's a bit more complicated. So, 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 tell us a bit about what was West, what Westphalia. The piece of Westphalia is understood to be, and and
1: what it actually was. Well, the, uh, it, the piece of Westphalia is understood exactly as yeah. as, as you yeah. said. So, the foundation of the the modern sovereign state, seen as a, a a national or even a nation state, and the idea that these states then interact as equals, rather than having a hierarchical order. And that they all subscribe then to, to a same common system of international law, and that really is a is an invention of the eighteen sixties, which is then retrospectively, sort of, by international lawyers writing in the eighteen sixties, seeking to, to find the origins of what they what the world indeed was becoming by that point, and they and they see it in, in the in the Peace of Westphalia and. It's not me that, just me that's saying this. I mean, there's a fantastic book by Derek Croxton, for example, The Last Christian Peace, which underscores the fact that the actual settlement of Westphalia is a settlement of the causes of the war, which is, which is why the war was called the 30th War. It's, they, they look back to what caused this, and much of it is a dispute over the possession of ecclesiastical land, for example right of immigration for religious dissenters and things like this. And those, those are specifically settled. So religion isn't taken out of politics, but what it is, is they, they make a settlement that makes it much harder to polarize along religious lines. So because it's a, it is an intricate compromise, the peace, so there are very few outright losers. So most people have gained at least something and the, the, this intricate settlement sort of suits the intricate constitution of the empire. So it was then much more difficult to sort of say, my religious rights are being pressed, come and help me, because somebody would, you know, you tried to join all the dots of all the different princes, and they'll say, well, actually, you know, I I don't want to to antagonize them, because they are currently my friend in this other dispute that I've got with my own local neighbor. And so it, it encouraged actually... The resolution of, of disputes through legal arbitration rather than recourse to violence. But the, the big thing that Westphalia does is it actually delegitimizes, by and large, recourse to violence, and certainly delegitimizes that for a certain level of political actors. So it does sort of shift the, the right to, to, to maintain troops becomes more concentrated, the right to take action becomes more concentrated in the, in the elite of the empire that then for the next 150 years are, are, are the ones who collectively are in charge of that area. Yeah. It, you, you document that the
0: 17th century sees a, a transition from mercenary forces to standing armies of a different character. Talk, talk a bit about that and talk about the, the changing nature of, of, of the conduct of war during that period.
1: Right. Well, for the, for the 16th century, war is essentially seasonal. So we have long wars, but most of the time, the, the armies are only to get together in the, in the kind of campaigning season. It's this war in the age of grass. You, you know, you have to have fair weather, you've got to have grass, that's your fuel, that, that, that's your animal feed that enables you to move. So outside the campaign season, forces were often reduced to garrisons to hold captured area. And then you would, you'd run out of money by that point. You re-recruit you remobilize, and fight in the next the next year. So in the seventeenth century we're shifting much more to forces maintained all, all the year round. Operations are lasting longer, but there is a demobilization at the end of the war. So at the end of the Thirty Years' War, we don't have standing armies. Only the Austrian have have standing armies. So the Bavarians who had, you know, a field force of about eighteen thousand men throughout the, the war, one of the major players, they they reduced a couple of garrison companies. So, and, and this is the peace dividend. Everyone wants that. And they think, well, we'll just have a few professional officers, militia companies, and, and that's our defense sorted. With the resumption of a series of prolonged wars then in, in the sort of six, late 60s and 60s onwards, then we shift to a cadre system. So we have a, a, a larger professional cadre, officer-heavy, that's maintained in peacetime that can be expanded. So you, your company size might be 50 men, and then you with, with a normal complement of officers and NCOs. Then you expand that by by recruiting new recruits, or you you impress militiamen or something to expand in wartime. And it's a kind of ratchet. You know, every every successive conflict across from the 1670s to the 1710s armies tended to, they, they would shrink again in peace, but they would be bigger than they were when that war broke out. So we have that incremental growth. Yeah. So as we move here
0: from the, the 17th into the 18th century, I mean, there's obviously a lot going on, but one of the things is, is the emergence of Prussia as a significant factor, and I, I, have, I have an instinct that you're going to, I, I again, say that a, a generalization like the one I'm about to make is, is, is oversimplified or too oversimplified, but I, I can't even remember where I read this years and years ago, but it's defined my, my thinking about Prussia sense that there's something about the geography of Prussia, sort of location on the Northern Plain that compels or compelled a particular seriousness towards the, the the maintenance and use of military force because the absence of natural boundaries and so mm-hmm. forth made it very vulnerable and that there was some comparison one could draw to the Spartans you know not not having walls again I can't remember where I read this but it was a yeah. clever comparison and it stuck with me and mm-hmm. I never particularly had reason to to, to to question it what 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 if any is the is, is the truth to this and what are the sources of well of, 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 of Prussianism as we've come to understand it
1: well, Prussia is certainly Brandenburg Prussia is certainly exceptional in in some in some respects. So, you know, from the sixteen sixties or so, it is on this upward trajectory, and that and that has indeed much to do with its leadership, the Hohenzollern dynasty, who do invest heavily in, in, in their armed forces or in their army. At least. They don't, they scarcely have a navy, and so it overtakes Bavaria and Saxony, which would be the other really were the m- more important in the 17th century. So during the, especially in the first half of the 18th century, Frederick William the first, so the, the, the father of Frederick the Great, there is a, he consciously adopts a different style. So less courtly display, wearing military uniform, changing it to, over to a system of limited conscription that enables a larger army on the cheap, because the men are sort of furloughed for the bulk of the year so they can work in the economy and then can be remobilized in the summer exercise period and of course, mobilized for war. So that has created a a, a system, which is, shall we say an exaggeration of what else you find across the empire. So not totally, but but certainly certainly by its scale and so forth uh, and exaggeration. If we look at Frederick the Great, who, who then uses this force that's been built up and doubles its size. And use it aggressively, and that also is exceptional. I mean, the, the Bavarians do fight the Habsburgs, but by and large, no one is foolish enough to challenge the Habsburg. Prussia does, and and very nearly comes across crop several times. You know, Frederick could easily have been killed on several occasions; history would have been quite different. You know, if you think of Charles the Twelfth of Sweden, you know, monarchs did get killed in battle, so that could have could have happened. What what we so. That is all part of the story. That's there. what we've also got to remember. Frederick invests heavily in courtly display. You only need to go to Potsdam and see the enormous palace he builds after the Seven Years' War to prove he's not bankrupt. He also he- invests heavily in fortifications. So we tend to think, you know, Prussia, decisive mobile war, you know, that, that works partly if you've got big fortresses that tie down your opponent. So there, there, there are... Major fortresses. Once they've captured Silesia, the big prize they've made again. You know, invest really heavily in fortifying it, and those those fortresses. That's the thing that doesn't save Prussia in 1806. That the garrisons just surrender. Hmm. So
0: talk a bit about. We, it's come up a few times here, but this this competition, sort of within the system that we've described between Hohenzollerns and Habsburgs, Prussia and, and Austria, and how that how that plays out over the course of the of, of of the 18th century it's a bit like this is probably overblown but just as we're talking i'm trying to you know conceptualize y- y- your argument for myself and it it it, it, re- it reminds me a bit of the international system today right where you have these organizations that are invested with legitimacy and you have countries that are you know competing for their various goals sort of within the system but at the same time there are these currents of of hard power right mm-hmm. That the members of the system are perfectly willing, under the right circumstances, to resort to, and you know, break the rules, as it were, to to achieve their goals. It, it sounds a bit like this. This is what's going on in miniature in this part of Europe in the 18th century. Is that is that fair?
1: Yeah, to to, to some extent, I I, I think the, the 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 difficulty we have we 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 tend to sort of look at this and we kind of imagine it as a kind of board game as if this is risk or something like that. So every player has has essentially the same goals, and that's domination of the whole area. And that, that isn't the case. The, the, the Prussian the and so on, they wanted to be recognized as European monarchs. So they only get a royal title in, in 1700, and they're the first German rulers, really, to to, to get one. The Habsburgs have got you know, royal titles for various other things, you know, kings of Hungary and stuff. But the... You know they they want that for international recognition, and they want to be taken seriously. So Frederick, for example, in the 1740s, is busy negotiating to make with other European powers that, that he will be recognised equally an equal status of Majesty. So there is we we're, we're still in a Europe that thinks hierarchically. There is only one imperial title, or at least there's only one that matters. That's the Holy Roman Imperial title, you know, until Napoleon crowns himself emperor. There isn't another a serious one. The Russians, you know, they, they you know, from the thinking of the time, they don't matter. The Sultan, he doesn't, you know, he's different. So, you know, we have a hierarchically organized system. So the Hohenzollahs, really, they want respect and they want autonomy. They don't want to, to have to, have to you know, follow the, 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 the rulings of the Imperial Supreme Court and things like that. But they don't, at the same time, they don't want to leave the empire. And they're very particular about defending the minutest most obscure right that they might have. So they, they are not about sort of taking over this system or, or dominating it. They want it to work because it, it, there are times when they're isolated politically. So they don't have another major power as an ally and they see the empire as a kind of reserve system to protect them. You know, that they, they, they belong to this collective, they'll, they'll get the benefits if they can and then contribute as little as possible. And the Austrians, of course, are trying to make this whole thing work for themselves too. So they're 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 not altruistic either, and they manipulate the system too. And that the real danger, and that's what happens, is what if these two big powers cooperate? And when they cooperate, you know, pol- Poland is part because they you know because they 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 cooperated, and it's unable to defend itself. And the smaller German principalities are thinking. My goodness, that could happen to us, and that—that's the same thing, really, that continues into the 19th century. Once, you know, with the German Confederation, it's just basically a re-established empire in, in, in a different form.
0: So let's let's talk a bit about the destruction of the empire. How does Napoleon exploit these dynamics and achieve victory in, in in the broadest sense? And if, in fact, as as you're suggesting, the the weakness of the system has been overblown after its after its defeat. You know, what's 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 the case what's the case for its right. strength given that, you know, is eighteen oh six, right? It it, yeah. it
1: disappears. Yeah. Well, one we, we, we have the, the the French strengths, so the revolutionary ideology justifies a much deeper reach of the states and, and its control of, of French blood and treasure than say the the previous Bourbon regime. So the French can be much more careless with their manpower and, and they so the aggressive tactics of the French and, you know, it, it's very costly, both in, in battle casualties and also a very high desertion rate as well. Don't feed your soldiers properly. That's what happens. But they can, they can afford such losses. So they can fight very aggressively. And they, their opponents are very slow to sort of respond to that. They're still trying to fight in the manner of the 18th century. Which not that 18th century wars weren't bloody, but there is a different level of thinking. So there's that. There. That's one thing. The other thing is the, the actual weakness of Prussia. So the Prussians are much more interested in, in finishing off the carve-up of Poland. And they're confronted in the early 1790s with a, a major insurrection, which threatens their Polish provinces. And they, they're so, they feel so insecure about the Polish provinces that they haven't extended conscription. So they're actually weak. They're short. They're basically bankrupt. And so they can't fight a two-front war, so they made peace with the French, 1795, and they suck the, the whole of northern Germany with them. So Hanover, Castle, Saxony, these were major armed principalities that in the past have contributed a substantial part to imperial defense. So the Austrians are left fighting only with the South Germans against the French, and they become increasingly so sort they of heavy-handed because they're desperate, and they're getting defeated, so they're treating these these South German territories. They're disregarding rights and so on. So the South German medium princes are thinking, "What are we going to do here?" And then they think, "Well, maybe we jump ship and, and sign up with the French." So there's there's a the South crumbles away as, as Baden and Wittenberg and Bavaria and the others throw their lot in with the French. So and then by 1805, the final you know catastrophic defeat. Uh, you know, Napoleon's got the best army you'll ever have, really, defeats the Austrians and Russians at Auselitz and then he can dictate peace. So the Austrians are thinking, you know, he's going to grab literally the, the imperial title and use it to, to legitimate his reorganization of Germany. So we will we will abdicate and dissolve the Empire to stop him from doing so.
0: It's it's a fascinating analysis and it sort of puts me in mind of um of the problem that we all face when we think about the past, that there's this tendency to look at the result of something and think, well, it must have been determined by some internal principle that that made it inevitable, right? Mm-hmm. The empire failed because the empire was always going to fail faced with a threat like that. And a threat like that was always yeah. going to defeat yeah. an empire designed in the way that it was. And, and your point, which in a way, and I, I mean, this is a compliment, kind of goes back to Thucydides, right? Is um, There's just a lot of contingency at work here. Mm. If the brakes go the other way, it's possible, maybe not likely, but it's possible to imagine the result going the other way, but it, but it doesn't, they don't, and it doesn't. And then this, this sense of weakness sets in, right, that, that the, the empire had been kind of a hopeless system behind the times, not availing itself of the resources that other European countries are availing themselves of. How does that belief play out? What are the, what are the consequences of that analysis in the 19th century? And how does it affect German military history and German military organization in the 19th century?
1: Yes, that, that that that's right. I mean, the, the, the there is a growing belief amongst at least certain parts of the German public that, that, that the empire is has, has been a failure, and that that takes a while to, 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 to build up. Part of it, this is confessional. So the the empire is incre- the, the imperial legacy is increasingly associated with the Habsburgs who are who are Catholic. So. The, 19th century politics and certainly 19th century nationalism swings, becomes much more Protestant. And that is part of the problem of sort of the greater versus the the small Germany solution to this, the question of unification, which is sort of hothouse really in in ideological terms. Most, Most Germans are not bothered about that so much. They just want more mundane problems about employment or the price of grain and stuff to be resolved. So... So there, 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 there's that sort of issue. The looking, looking back, the, they actually what the confederation does is it adopts a, a military system that isn't dissimilar to the empire. Again, it's a contingent system with with common commands and a, a collective decision to be taken by the the, the federal diet in place of the old imperial diet, and that that system. It's is, is partly put in place and it does actually mobilize most of the German small states fight on the Austrian side against Prussia in 1866. It's not just Austria against Prussia. There are also the Bavarians and stuff and the Hanoverians actually defeat the small Prussian army, but it's, it is partly hollowed out by the fact that it's clear by, certainly by the, the early 1860s that, the, that Prussia is so, is so predominant that many of these smaller states thinking it's actually quite expensive to maintain our, you know, our confederal contingent. Let's just pay the Prussians. Let the Prussians go. And and so they they surrender some of their military sovereignty, and that, that becomes a rush after 1866. And a lot of them are annexed as well. The small ones that picked the wrong side, Nassau and, 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 and Hanover and stuff, are annexed by the, by the Prussia, which Prussia becomes much bigger as a result. So there's... um. I, I,
0: again i just I keep bringing my my conventional preconceptions to the table and allow you to uh, to 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 chip away at them. Bismarck launches a series of three lightning wars that that aid in the unification of the country, the establishment of empire. This sets in place a pattern that ultimately less talented men cannot maintain, leading to not one but two civilizational disasters in nineteen fourteen and nineteen thirty nine That's certainly what I've thought. What, what should we add to this picture or subtract
1: from this from this picture? well that that's looking at it like that well obviously say you know both, both world wars are are, are Germany's fault, which is a you know, it's, a, it's a, an easy view to take if you're not a german. <laughs> so the german the, so the, the i I would hesitate about trying to sort of pin all the blame solely on the Germans, but certainly the, the, the if we look at what the Germans are doing, what the German high command is doing, i mean they are. They are preparing for what they think will be a a, a short and victorious war because of the experience they had in 1870-71. So you think eighteen seventy, the, the what's usually called the Franco Prussian or Franco German War, you know, within a few months that they, the the Germans have won a decisive victory, they captured Napoleon the third, the bulk of the French regular army, you know, that's job done. The French should surrender and made peace, and they don't. And there's a protracted struggle that runs into into the early part of the, the following year when they are fight, fighting to some extent um guerrillas, and it creates a, a kind of anxiety. You know, they, they, we we will be robbed of our of our victory. So, it, 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 if we are trying to understand the kind of military thinking in the last sort of 30, 40 years before the First World War, it, it's this. You know, there's an imperative to achieve a, a swift and decisive victory to prevent this unraveling and also to prevent far superior resources being brought to bear. You know, that's this sort of sense of encirclement. Yes, it's partly geographic, but it's also more mental. You know, that, that our opponents will be more numerous. So that's one of the reasons why they support the Austrians because they're, they're reluctant to, to right. lose their, their main ally in, in 1914. And the out, the, the, the Following the defeat, there's a kind of refusal, really, to learn from that. And so there is the same type of thinking that dominates, you know, partly the army, the senior command of the army after the First World War, you know, that themselves. They weren't responsible for the defeat. They'd been stabbed in the back by socialists and shirkers and, and, and the weakness of the home front. So it allows us the same mentality and the same kind of flawed analysis to persist.
0: Why does the German assault into France fail to achieve its objectives in 1914 but succeed in
1: 1940? Right. Just to, you know, we've got we've got I don't know yeah. 5 10 okay. minutes left. <laughs> oh, right. Well, I'd say, you know, 19 1914 they, they could they could only have won if everything had gone, to plan. So, you know, i it, it it's and, and it's the failure to to sort of adapt. You know, when, when you when you hit a problem, what does you know ultimately when Falkenhayn takes over, you know, the race to the sea? Well, we're just trying to outflank them a bit more, and you know, and and it, it's not going to work. Nine, 1940, I think, is a is a is a different situation. I mean, by by 1940, you've got a, an army. Yes, I mean, half the arm, German army is either old men or, or or poorly trained, but they believe in themselves. They've just smashed the poles. You know they 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 they're convinced that they're going to win. They have certain technical advantages. So the fact that they have the much better use of radios, so better coordination of of, of armor and and, and and air power, and they're facing a force that that by and large feels it's likely to be defeated. So they have those 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 advantages. But things could could have gone wrong. I mean, we could have seen you know the, the enormous columns of of, of German troops passing through the Ardennes, you know, not dissimilar to to what we saw with the initial Russian assault towards Kiev and, you know, with better use of air power and so on by the Allies, you could have had a sort of similar result of stalling that advance. So again, it's, I wouldn't say it's a foregone conclusion. We need to look at the the events in detail to to find that, that explanation. You make an observation
0: early in the book that I've been, I've been thinking about for days now about contemporary reception of in particular this period of of german military history and how the americans embarked on a a modernization campaign based on i think you i think you call it a myth based based upon a, a sort of myth or mythical understanding of blitzkrieg whereas the chinese of late you say have actually taken a kind of different lesson from the results of the first and second world wars for the germans namely that you can't mistake an opening gambit for a strategy. I think I'm paraphrasing you mm-hmm. correctly. And I like to take both of those things in turn because they're both really interesting. I, 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 I've I, lived what you're saying in terms of the the American reception of, of wow. the sort of blitzkrieg operating concepts. I mean, the, the Marine Corps circa 10, 15 years ago, again, there's explicit reference to mission, you know, the way we talk about mission type orders and operating concepts and so forth. It's explicit reference to sort of German ways of war from the previous century. And a belief certainly within the Marine Corps that you know the 2003 march up to Baghdad was an example of the success of, of of such a concept. So what's what's mythical about it? What what were Americans failing to understand in in, in your view? What what are we what are we over overblowing
1: about blitzkrieg? Right. Then well, talk well, about the Chinese. <laughs> well, you know, I'd I'd, I'd I'd hesitate to pass judgment on on on. Uh, American policy and, and those campaigns, yeah. but you know, if we, if we stick with it with, with, with the Germans, I think I think the the basic problem is that they, the, 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 you know we tend that we tend to think that the the German military was trying to escape political control and act on its own. It wasn't. They, they had a very professional view of what their job was. Their job was to win a victory, and then you hand over to the politicians and then decide what to do. And they only got frustrated with politicians had they... If they if the if they themselves encountered a problem and were not getting that victory, and then thought they were not being supported enough, so the, the 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 big problem was they were planning for a victory, and not what you do with a victory, and so there was a disconnect really between a national strategy which is, is based on you know national interests and, and coordinated with with by by the by the government and and the planning planning for a war, so. That, I would say, is, is, is really where, where where things went wrong. It's the idea that somehow with a victory, you can do what you like. And it's not the case. And I think that the, 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 the problem is often how we tend to forget how a war is fought is also going to make a, 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 an impact on how it might be resolved. And that's certainly the case with the with certain war. I mean, I think one of the reasons why the Peace of Westphalia was actually a relatively good settlement, at least for the bulk of the belligerents, is that they were pretty much all invited to the table. And they, and they do work out a kind of compromise with relatively complete losers. And so they all have a stake in the peace. And, and I think that, that perhaps is a, is a lesson for the problem.: Peter Wilson, author of
0: Iron and Blood, A Military History of the German-Speaking People Since 1500, this conversation and the book are genuinely thought provoking. I am very grateful for your time. Thank you. This is a nebulous media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.